Well, good morning, everyone. As you can see, Brian is away this week. He's in Whistler with his wife, so pray that they have a wonderful time away. And uh, left his kids in the care of Hannah, who was very responsible. And uh, thank you, Dylan, for <laughs> and thank you, Dylan, for playing the trumpet this morning. That was awesome. You did a good job. So uh, as you will probably know, over the last few months, we've been flying over the Book of Acts. And I say flying over because really we've only landed at a few key pivotal moments in the Book of Acts, and there is so much more that we haven't touched on than what we have. And so I encourage you this week, if you haven't done so yet, to read the Book of Acts or to finish reading the book, because the last sermon on Acts is next Sunday, believe it or not, and then we're into Advent. Oh my goodness, I'm not ready, but that's okay. Um, and I just want to encourage you, the book of Acts actually only takes about two and a half hours to read at an average reading speed. So even if you've read nothing up until now, you can read it this week, and it would be a great review for you as well. So last week, last Sunday, Pastor Brian talked about the council meeting in Jerusalem, and that was in Acts chapter 15. And it was decided at that council that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians did not have to follow the law of Moses, that just simple faith in Jesus was enough to be saved. And so between Acts 15 and Acts 20, which is where we're going to land our plane today, um, a lot of stuff happens, a lot. Paul uh, continues to travel through Macedonia and Greece and goes to various cities to proclaim the gospel. He's persecuted, he's thrown in prison, he gets out of prison. Um, and these travels are known as his second and third missionary journeys. And what's really cool is in most Bibles, at the very back, you'll find some maps and you can actually see a map of where Paul went on his three major missionary journeys. And so the second and third one take place between Acts 15 and Acts 20. So there's a lot going on. He has this vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to come. And so he heads to Philippi, which was the most important city in that region, and preaches there and ends up in prison. Then he gets released and he goes to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. And some places he stays longer than others. So he actually spends about a year and a half in Corinth and almost three years in Ephesus. So about eight or nine years have passed by this way as he's traveling and preaching and facing persecution of all kinds. And during this time, he also starts to write letters to some of the churches that he's planted. And that includes the ones that we know in our Bibles as Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. All that happened between Acts 15 and Acts 20. Okay, so you see that we're really, we're really jumping ahead in time here. Even though it's only five chapters in our Bibles, it's been years. It's been eight or nine at least, and the church has been growing exponentially. The gospel's been spreading all over the known world to all kinds of new people. So in Acts 20, if you want to open your Bibles to that passage, we're going to start in verse 17 in a few minutes. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it's the first time he's gone there since the council meeting. But he knows that things are not going to go well for him there. The Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he will be arrested again. So as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's saying goodbye to all the churches that he possibly can, because he doesn't think he'll ever get to see them again. 
And so he doesn't have time to go all the way back to Ephesus, so he calls for some of the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet him so he can give them some final instructions. It's funny because he still writes a whole lot of letters after this and says a whole lot more things, but he doesn't maybe see them in person again. So he wants to talk to them in person and calls them to come meet him in uh, Acts 20, 17 to 35. And, and this speech, it's not exactly a sermon, but it's a speech of Paul's that he gives to them. It's a great summary of how he lived his life as a missionary to the Gentiles. And it highlights some of the most important things that he wants the churches to remember. If I were to give Paul's speech here a title, I would call it Living and Dying with No Regrets. And so there's a lot we can learn about how to live as faithful witnesses for Jesus in this speech. So let's read Acts 20, starting at verse 17. It's on screen behind me as well. From Miletus, that's a city, apparently, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus." And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, at first glance, we might think that Paul sounds like he's just bragging about himself and about the way that he lived. He's almost writing his own obituary. You know, these are all the things that Paul did and all the wonderful guy that he was. But what we have to remember is that he deliberately chose to use his life as a teaching method to model for the new believers how they should live as Christians. And so he's summing up his life here because he expects them to follow his example, not to try and make himself look good or to get their praises. And he tells us this explicitly in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
So I don't think he's bragging here. He's teaching them what he wants them to do. And I think that in this speech, there's at least five important ideas that he wants them to remember based on his own pattern of living and some of the direct commands that he gives to them. So if you want to take notes, there's only going to be five things you have to write down. It's pretty easy. The first principle is, is very simple, but it's also very difficult and very profound. Paul is encouraging them to be all in. There's a great song by Toby Mac called All In, by the way, in case you're into that kind of music, you can listen to it later. It goes really well with this sermon. Uh, so to be all in, Paul's philosophy of life was in everything you do, do your absolute best. Don't be lukewarm or half-hearted about it. And Paul was just that kind of guy because even before he was a Christian, he was passionate, right? He valued working hard and sacrificing for a cause. Unfortunately, it was the wrong cause. But after he meets Jesus, he really gives it everything that he's got. And he encourages these Ephesians to continue pushing forward, persevere in spite of whatever challenges that they may face. He says, we've, we've only got one lifetime in which to serve Christ. And so the clock is ticking. So we need to commit and be focused on our mission. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul wrote this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I always feel very convicted when I read that phrase, do not run like someone running aimlessly. I'm not a runner by any means. <laughs> I would be aimless. But I'm also not a naturally disciplined person like Paul. Uh, I am kind of aimless. I change my mind a lot. I get swayed by my emotions. I avoid making decisions. And if I look back at my life, I think a lot of my life I just sort of let happen to me. And, and every single time I've tried to set myself like a schedule or a long-term plan, I've given up on it. But that is every single time except for one which is when I decided to follow Jesus when I was five years old. And I've never changed my mind about that, amazingly. I never have. It's the one thing that I'm all in for. I can't keep a clean house. I can't keep a set time for reading my Bible. I can't uh, enforce the rules that I set for myself. But by God's grace, I also can't stop loving Jesus and trying to obey what he's commanded. And I have decided I'm never going to give up on that. I hope you have too. When I went through the ordination process about a year ago, many of you were here for that, um, I was surprised that I felt a bit uneasy beforehand. I thought that I'd already made a firm commitment to Jesus, right? I, I decided to follow him for the rest of my life. I did that at my baptism, and I did it again when I decided to become a pastor. Uh, but then ordination made me realize, wow, I, I really can't back out of this now, can I? <laughs> <laughs> not without damaging the faith of a whole lot of other people. So there's no, there's no more quietly disappearing from church for me, just not attending anymore, or there's no changing my mind and becoming a Buddhist or something. I have to be all in. And Paul is saying here, that's actually the case for everybody who follows Jesus. We are all called to be just as committed to Jesus as he is to us. And so that we serve him wholeheartedly, with no reservations, the way that our king deserves. 
So that's the first principle, that we need to be all in on this. The second thing that Paul tells us is to finish the task you've been given. Just like the verses that I read you from 1 Corinthians about the race, Paul uses that same metaphor of a race here in Acts 20, 24. Let me read you just that one verse again. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, obviously, we don't have exactly the same task as Paul. He was chosen to kickstart the growth of the early church by being a missionary to the Gentiles. But in the broader sense, we do have the same calling. We do have the same task. It's to testify to the good news of God's grace in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, to tell our stories as witnesses to God's work in our lives. We know we're to live out the great commandment and the great commission, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and then making disciples of all nations. That is our task. But maybe in your life, probably, God has showed you a more specific task that you can identify based on your particular spiritual gifts and your natural abilities and the circumstances that you find yourself in. My task, as I currently understand it, is to take what I've learned from God and share it with others right here in White Rock and South Surrey where I've been called to pastor. Your task might be different. It surely is. And it might not take place here in the church. Your task might be involved with your career, or it might be in your family, or it might be in some volunteer work that you do in the community. But we're each running our own race, that unique path that's set before us by God. And whatever it is, our most important priority in life should be to complete that task that the Lord Jesus has given us. Are we actually running our race well? Are we focused on that goal? Or are we distracted and running aimlessly? Jesus once called it the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth that can choke out the fruit of the gospel in our lives. If you feel a little bit unsettled because you don't know what your specific task is, that's okay. I have a great quote for you from Amy Semple McPherson. She was a Canadian evangelist in the 20s and 30s. And she said, what is my task? First of all, my task is to be pleasing to Christ, to be empty of self and be filled with himself. So that's where you start, to be pleasing to Christ in whatever it is that you're doing. And as you are surrendering your own ambitions to the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide you into the plans that he has for you. So we're going to be all in, and we're going to finish the task the Lord Jesus has given us, and the third life principle that Paul expresses in this goodbye speech is to don't, that we don't play it safe. The Christian life is not about risk management. This is one of the reasons I hate paying for insurance, by the way. But it's not about protecting ourselves from hardships. Comfort and safety is not supposed to be our goal. Paul actually knew for certain, that going to Jerusalem meant prison and suffering and probably death. But he still went. Even though many of his friends tried to dissuade him, and they had good reasons to try and do that. Paul, what are you doing? You have such a wonderful, a wonderful ministry, and so many more people need to hear the gospel, and why would you go someplace where they're going to arrest you and kill you? Well, he went there because Jesus told him to. 
And if you read on to Acts chapter 21, this week at home, when you're reading, uh, you can read about a believer named Agabus who prophesies that Paul's going to be bound hand and foot and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are going to hand him over to the authorities. And then the whole church starts crying and begging him not to go. But he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm, not, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he did what he was called to do, even when it meant pain and suffering and death. And I just think, wow, we have it so easy by comparison. What do we here in Canada in the 21st century, what do we really have to sacrifice to fulfill the task Jesus has given us? Some time and some effort, maybe a warm night in our own beds, some money, sure, some of our leisure activities, some of our comforts, these are our sacrifices. You know, it, here's a challenge for us as we're praying for each other this week. I think we should pray a little less for safety, to be honest. Let's pray less for safety and instead let's pray for bold risk-taking in the name of Jesus. We are already so safe that we have become comfortable and apathetic in Canada. We don't need more safety. Or if we really want to pray for safety, let's redirect it. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in countries where they could actually get arrested or killed for being a Christian. I looked up the top three countries in the world right now where it is most dangerous to be a Christian. This is a list published by, uh, it's called the World Watch List, published by Open Doors USA. Does anybody know what the top three are right now? North Korea is second, yeah. Afghanistan is first. Afghanistan, North Korea, and Somalia. So if we want to pray for safety for somebody, let's pray for those Christians. Afghanistan, North Korea, and Somalia. I said you only had to write down five things, but you can write down those three as well. Pray for them, because we have such easy tasks by comparison to Paul and to some of our brothers and sisters around the world. We've got to tell some neighbors and friends about Jesus. We maybe should invite them to church. Maybe we could sacrifice our weekly coffees so that we can give to people in need. We've got it so easy. So let's not waste our opportunities by playing it safe. Paul says, don't play it safe. Let's be willing to actually risk something. Our reputations and our comfort are pretty much all we have to risk here. And let's do that for the sake of Jesus who gave his own life for us. Now, the fourth principle is a little different from the first three. It's not in what Paul says exactly, but it's more of how he said it. I was struck by reading Paul's speech that he is so vulnerable and so real with these Ephesian elders. And I think it's a good principle for us, too. So number four is to tell people clearly what's on your heart. Paul makes sure not to leave anything unsaid. He tells them the things that are important. He doesn't assume that they know what he thinks is important. He gives them advice. He gives them warnings. He gives them affirmations and encouragement. And he isn't vague about it. He specifically says, you've got to remember all the things that I taught you. You've got to be on your guard because there's going to be persecution. There's going to be people attacking you. And he says, it's only God and his word that's going to get you through this. So you've got to focus on that. 
And while he doesn't exactly say, I love you, he still says, for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. That sounds like love. So he doesn't mince any words here. He doesn't uh, sugarcoat the persecution that they're going to have to face and the danger that they're in, but he also expresses great confidence in God. God has a plan for them and an inheritance for them and that God's going to be faithful to them when he's gone. So how often do we really speak candidly to each other in the church about things like that? I think we need to do it more, to say what we mean and mean what we say. If you're worried about someone, you can tell them that. If someone does a great job at something, you can encourage them to keep doing it. If you want to give a piece of advice or a warning to someone, pray about it and use the words that the Holy Spirit gives you to do that. Don't keep stuff to yourself that would be helpful for other people to hear. And even if it makes, I know it makes things awkward sometimes, right? Because you've only had these small talks with people. How are you? How's your family? Everything good? But you can go deeper than that. You really can. And we really should be able to, especially in the church. And so it's okay to go beyond that and tell people that you appreciate them, that you can see their calling and how well they're serving the Lord. You can ask them, what's your specific task from Jesus right now? And how can I pray for you and support you in that? We can keep things to ourselves that cause misunderstandings, but telling people clearly what's on our heart is going to deepen our relationships. It's going to help us to grow as a healthier church, even if sometimes it's difficult. So the last thing, the last principle that I think Paul touches on in this farewell speech is that we should live to give, not to get. And at first I found it kind of surprising that Paul ends this way. Verses 33 to 35 seem a little bit out of place compared to the rest of his speech. Why is he suddenly talking about not coveting silver or gold? But it helps to remember Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, which was a very rich and very prosperous city. And he was reminding them that even though they have the right to be supported by the church for their work as leaders, they shouldn't be greedy. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, this, a letter to another wealthy city, Corinth, he says, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So it was a point of pride for Paul that he didn't ask the churches that he planted to support him, but instead he worked as a tent maker or a leather worker to earn his living. He was bivocational before that was even a word. And so I think he wants to remind these church leaders of their role as servants and that the real blessing from God is not what we receive, but it's the ability to give. The more we give, the more blessed we are. And that was a very countercultural message for the Ephesians, and it's a very countercultural message for us today in one of the wealthiest countries of the world. We often say we're so blessed when we receive good and pleasant things, right? We're so blessed to have the sunshine, we're so blessed to have our homes and the food that we have and our families, and that's true, we are, but we're more blessed when we sacrifice for others. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul quotes him here. And so I think Paul wanted to emphasize this point to the rich people in particular because it's so hard for the rich to let go of their riches and not be distracted by them. 
It's so hard to let go of our dependence on our material things and actually trust that God will provide for us. In one of his letters to Timothy, Paul wrote that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Paul doesn't want to see that happen to his dear friends in Ephesus. And God doesn't want it to happen to us either. So he encourages us to live forgiving, not to get. I thought of a fun thing we could try this week. We often, people keep a gratitude journal of their blessings and write down things that they're grateful for. But let's try keeping a gratitude journal where you can't list things that benefit you. You have to list things that benefit others. Like this. I'm so blessed that I could help my child with their homework. I am blessed to be able to support the youth in their fundraiser. I am blessed that I could cook for my neighbor. I am blessed to be able to give my friend a ride to church. You get the idea? Try that for a few days and see if it doesn't change the way that you look at what a blessing is. If it's more blessed to give than to receive, then it's what we give that we should be counting as our blessings. Kind of interesting idea, right? If we can learn to live according to these five principles that Paul speaks of here, being all in for Jesus, striving to finish the task that we've been given, not playing it safe, telling people clearly what's on our hearts, and living to give, not get, then I truly believe that we can live and die with no regrets the way that Paul did. Now, if you find it hard later to remember five points, that's okay. I have a great summary of Paul's message that is in one quote from William Carey. Do you all know who William Carey was? He was a great missionary uh, to India and the man that Carey Theological College is named for. And he once said this, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. So Paul's whole speech is exhorting us to succeed at the things that really matter. In his own life and in his teaching, everything for Paul was about succeeding at following Jesus. And so I would like for us to pray together now that we can live that same way, that we can live and die with no regrets. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. Lord, we have so many things to entertain us, so many fun things to distract us and to pull us off mission. We have hardships too. We have things that discourage us and derail us. We have temptations and doubts. We have sickness and pain of all kinds. Lord, would you help us that no matter what situation we're in, that we would be focused on you. Jesus, you are all that matters. When we stand before you someday, when this life is over, so much of the things we do on a daily basis are not going to matter. Lord, help us to commit our hearts fully and finally to you, to not leave ourselves any outs, but to be all in in our commitment to you. Lord, help us as we seek to give to others, to truly value what we give more than what we get. Lord, we, we can't 
really get that. We can hear the words and we can believe it, but we don't always live that way. We would much rather get things than give. So change our hearts, Holy Spirit. We ask you to come and empower us to live the way that you want us to live. And we thank you for your word and for the words of Paul that are recorded here to encourage us. May we come back to them often, Lord. Thank you for continuing to work in our lives. No matter where we are in our faith journey, you are with us and you are moving us along one step at a time. And we thank you for that and your goodness. Amen.